0: It's time to take the quiz. 5 questions, 5 minutes a day, 5 days a week.
1: Take the quiz every weekday at the and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course listen to the quiz at the quiz.fox.
2: Now, from the most powerful city in the world, a new generation of conservative talk. Fair, fresh, fun. It's the Guy Benson show with Guy Benson.
3: It's Thursday, October 13th, 2022. I'm Guy Benson. Welcome to the Guy Benson Show. Glad to have you here every weekday between 3 and 6 p.m. Eastern Time. Right here, we encourage you to listen live on our great affiliates, for example, like 106.3 Extra here in Atlanta, where I'm doing the show yesterday, today, and tomorrow, or across the whole country. You can listen live many ways on the app, on the live stream, Fox Nation. You've got options. Odyssey.com, A-U-D-A-C-Y.com. If you can't catch the whole three hours, there's an on-demand free podcast when the show is over just after 6 p.m. Eastern time. Free every day, like no charge to you. On demand, we recommend that. GuyBensonShow.com, FoxNewsPodcast.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. Follow us on social media as well, at GuyBensonShow Show, on both Twitter and Instagram. Now, I've got a busy show as usual here for you today. J.D. Vance, Republican Senate nominee out of Ohio, he will be here later on this hour. Fresh off his debate with Tim Ryan, we talked about it here. We'll ask him about it. Sandra Smith, our colleague at Fox News, she will be here to break down the economic numbers out today on inflation that we're going to start with here in just a moment. Huge, huge story. Really bad numbers. We'll have an on-the-ground report here in Georgia about the races here, gubernatorial race, Senate race as well, of course. And then Andy McCarthy in our final hour, longtime federal prosecutor on the Durham investigation, some updates there happening this week. Also, some crime developments that we'll ask him about. And if we get time, maybe we'll ask about today's January 6th committee proceedings as well. But we begin with the biggest story in the country, the number one issue for voters Inflation. Another report out today. This is the final consumer price index, CPI, the last report coming out in the United States before the midterm elections. So I know that the Democrats were desperate for signs of improvement so they could cling to those and try to make the case that things are getting better. That was not the report that came out today. Earlier in the week, we got the wholesale prices number that went up more than expected. In fact, double what was expected by the markets. Well, today, the CPI also was worse than expected by a significant margin. And core CPI, core inflation, the number even uglier on that front. Heather Long at The Washington Post Reporting earlier, inflation rose 8.2 percent in the past year. In September alone, inflation rose 0.4 percent, up from 0.1 percent in August. Remember, they tried to say this was zero inflation. Well, now it went up. They were expecting an increase of 0.2 percent. It was actually 0.4, double. Food and rent prices continue to climb, even as gas has come down somewhat, she says, although it's starting to creep back up again. Real hourly earnings falling again down month over month, of course, down year over year, down 3% year over year, which is a wage cut, a pay cut for the American people, a massive effective tax on everyone, disproportionately hurting the middle and working class. The lower down on the income spectrum you are, the harder this is for you to absorb. You can't absorb it. It's just a body blow. But they were trying to say, oh, well, the last couple months, month over month, real hourly earnings had gone up a little bit. So maybe that's progress, even though year over year it's still down. And then in September, month over month, it went down again, back into the red. A deeper pay cut for the American people. In this worse than expected inflation report, overall, 8.2% increase year over year for over last year, 8.2%. Core inflation up 6.5%, 6.6%. They talk about the progress on gas. It's still 18% higher than it was a year ago. Fuel oil, 58% higher. Electricity, 15% higher. Groceries, 13% higher. And then real average hourly earnings down 3%. Heather Long saying the bottom line on inflation, September September was another tough month. That came in worse than expected. Services inflation is picking up even as some goods begin to cool. Services inflation up 7.4% in the past year, the most since 1982. So here we have another four-decade worst. It's been a continuous grab bag of those, hasn't it, now? Month after month after month. When Joe Biden took office... With Democratic control of both houses of Congress, the first thing they did was spend $2 trillion more trillion on top of all the emergency spending, $2 trillion new dollars out the door. Even Democratic economists, Larry Summers, Steve Ratner, others, warning at the time, this is inflationary, this is unwise, Ratner called it, one of the greatest errors, one of the biggest mistakes policy-wise in recent memory. Larry Summers screaming to anyone who would listen about inflation. It was all just waved away by Joe Biden and the Democrats. They all voted unanimously for this thing, $2 trillion. In today's summary of what's happening, a Morgan Stanley analysis echoing guys like Summers and Ratner. Not Republicans, not conservatives, Democratic-aligned economists. Here's Morgan Stanley. Saying, quote, excessive fiscal stimulus provided during the pandemic, particularly the last one point nine trillion dollar package at the end of March 2021, just as the economy was already emerging from the lockdowns, was what turbocharged consumption and drove inflation to 40 year highs. So you can say some of this is beyond Biden and the Democrats control. That's true. Inflation is happening all over the place around the world. But compared to other countries, a lot of major developed countries, our inflation is worse because our leadership, controlled completely by the Democrats in Washington, made it worse by insane, reckless inflation bomb spending. I will remind you that every member of the House Democratic caucus, all of them except for one, voted for Build Back Better, which would have been $5 trillion more. It would be much worse. They all voted for that. Every Senate Democrat except for two would have voted for it had they had the opportunity. They believe in massive government spending, like jaw-dropping amounts of government spending. They believe it is consequence-free, and they can just spin their way out of any inflation. Thank God they didn't get more of their way, although they did get the so-called Inflation Reduction Act, which every single one of them voted for. Every Democrat in Congress voted for the Inflation Reduction Act, which doesn't reduce inflation. Bernie Sanders even admitted it does almost nothing on the inflation front. It was a bunch of spending on other programs that they called inflation reduction because people are worried about inflation, so they just slapped the name on the bill, passed it, and all said, congratulations to us. We voted for inflation reduction and they had a huge party about it the day last month that the inflation numbers were terrible. Seems like they've had the sense today not to have a giant party, at least not yet. And just to show you what a lie it is that the Inflation Reduction Act was about reducing inflation, in the interview he gave to Jake Tapper on CNN this week, Biden was talking about the so-called inflation reduction, but in a very different context, bragging he was really struggling to get the numbers right. As you'll hear, but he was bragging about how much spending it was on climate change. Cut twenty.
4: What I ran on, I said we're going to deal with energy, right? And and the energy problem, we're going to deal with the whole notion of global warming. We passed three hundred sixty-eight billion dollars worth of help, which, as the same bankers talk about, is going to bring a billions a trillion seven hundred million dollar billion dollars off the sidelines of investment.
3: Billion. To- Trillion and the million and the billion and the trillion and the whatever the number is, it's a huge amount of money. And what he's saying is, look at how much we've spent on climate change. This was a spending bill, it was not an inflation reduction bill, no matter what they call it. They want to double the IRS, spend a bunch of money on Green New Deal stuff. That's what they actually did. And now since that thing passed, we've had back-to-back months of worse inflation. It's getting worse. Of course it was going to. They just keep spending. They're addicted to it. They'll never stop. They won't stop now under these circumstances. They would never stop. They have been doing this without a check on their power for two years. So you brag about all the money that you've spent. Then inflation happens, and you just don't want to really address it or talk about it. Then you pass another spending package that you pretend is about inflation reduction, but then you go on television talking about how it was a historic investment on green stuff, and then two days later, we get the numbers that we got today. It is quite a juxtaposition. Now, I would like to remind you that Joe Biden, and this is important, I think, for Republicans to – comment on and drive home in these final 26 days before the election. Joe Biden didn't do this by himself. right? He's using his executive power in a lot of ways, including grossly abusing it, like the student loan debt giveaway to disproportionately upper middle and upper income people paid for by the vast majority of Americans who don't have student loan debt. He's trying to do that, I think, totally illegally on his own. But all of this spending, because that's inflationary too, hugely inflationary, but all of this jaw-dropping, mind-bending spending that we're talking about here in these big packages, trillions of dollars, and they wanted trillions more, and came close, came two senators away from doing it. Biden, Biden didn't do that alone. He needed Congress, and he got a bunch of saluting Democrats with almost no exceptions. Like, you can name The exceptions, there were two of them, basically, who weren't willing to salute and go along with Biden, Pelosi, Schumer, Biden, Harris, Pelosi, Schumer, all of them. Without the yes votes from Raphael Warnock here in Georgia, Catherine Cortez Masto in Nevada, Mark Kelly in Arizona, Maggie Hassan in New Hampshire, Michael Bennett in Colorado, Patty Murray in Washington State, Without all of them lining up and doing what the Democrats told them to do, which they always do, all of them, on everything that matters, without that, this couldn't have passed, these trillions of dollars in spending, totally partisan bills, zero Republican support, extremely reckless, their own economists saying, don't do it. They did it anyway. Then in the Ohio race, and we're going to talk to J.D. Vance later, Tim Ryan, he's in the House of Representatives. He wants a like a promotion now to the Senate, he not only voted for all this stuff, he also voted for Build Back Better, $5 trillion. He saluted like he always does. $5 trillion on top of all this. Along with every other House Democrat, except for one guy in Maine, all of them. And the senators that I just mentioned, Warnock, Masto, Kelly, Hassan, they would have all voted for this thing if given the opportunity. That's what they do. Chuck Schumer puts something in front of them and says, It's more money. We're doing it. And they all say, Yes, sir. Joe Biden says, "Uh, You know, do the thing. And they're like, Okay. That's what they all do every time. So I think it's important to remember the context behind this problem. It is not completely of the Democrats' making. I think it would be a hack job to pretend that it is. There is global inflation. That is true. We are uniquely bad by a number of metrics and have gotten a much harsher, more raw deal on inflation than other places because the people in charge are extremely irresponsible and have caused the problem to be a lot worse. And I saw Biden today called, if you can believe this, he called the new inflation report progress. Like, it came in worse than expected. Core inflation, definitely worse than than expected. And he said it's progress. He also said that inflation would get worse if the Republicans win. How? He would still be president. Anything the Republicans could even try to do, he could veto and stop. He and his crew have had complete control of Washington, D.C. For the better part of two years, we are at 40-year high inflation We're in the middle of a technical recession already. People are warning that a painful recession is coming when the corrections to inflation really start to bite. And the best Joe Biden has to offer is that Republicans would somehow make it worse by winning the House and or the Senate. It makes no sense. This from the same guy who told us there would be no inflation. No one was worried about it. Then it was transitory. Then it had peaked. Then it was everyone else's fault. And don't worry, we're not in a recession now, even though we are. And if we do have a recession down the line, it will only be a slight one. Not a shred of credibility from this man, the President of the United States, and his small army of henchmen on Capitol Hill. Enough. Enough of this. At the very least, Republicans could have some power to say, no, we're not doing more. The next giant, crazy left-wing thing they try. No, we're not going to do that. That seems like a pretty good argument for the Republicans in November. Maybe that's just me. A lot more to get to on all of this today. It is the Guy Benson Show from Atlanta. Stay with us.
2: The Guy Benson Show. More next. The Fox News Rundown, a contrast of perspectives you won't hear anywhere else. Your daily dose of news twice a day, featuring insight from top newsmakers, reporters, and Fox News contributors. Listen and subscribe now by going to FoxNewsPodcasts.com.
3: I'm Guy Benson. We're back. Let's add to the stew that we were just talking about on inflation and the bad numbers today. Amazingly, they're trying to spin it as progress. At least Biden is. I he doesn't know what he's talking about. He knows nothing on this. He's just been wrong on everything for two years. And was like, oh, but if the Republicans win, it'll be worse. OK. New York Post headline. Listen to this. White House admits to pushing Saudi Arabia to postpone oil cuts until after the midterms. Imagine that. The Biden administration admitted Thursday... It had asked Saudi Arabia to delay the OPEC-plus vote to cut oil production until the cartel's next meeting after the U.S. midterm elections. Obviously, that didn't happen. These are the Biden people. Oh, no, please wait. We just need a few more months, a few more weeks. Political reasons. They've handcuffed our energy industry here, telling them we're going to put you out of business. Plus, you're greedy. Produce, but we won't let you. It's just a mess. Meanwhile, they're reaching out to Iran and Venezuela. They're begging the Saudis not to do this. Just give us a few weeks, not because it was going to help on policy, just pure politics. That's it. Saudis and OPEC, I guess, didn't play ball. If just the Saudis claiming it. You're not necessarily going to believe them. But the Biden administration is admitting, oh, well, we we did reach out because the Saudis blew the whistle on this. They said, hey, by the way, this is what they tried. And now Biden is saying, oh, you know, they're going to have consequences. We have to change or rethink our relationship with them. Karine Jean-Pierre, oh, you know, watch out, Saudis. Kind of sounds like retaliation. Kind of sounds a little bit like they were asking for what's, what's the term that was so popular there for a while? Quid pro quo? Quid pro quo? Telling a foreign government to do something for political gain at home? It's not exactly the same. And I didn't defend Trump on the Ukraine stuff, by the way. This seems like naked politics to try to mask their own policy failures. They got called on it. They're like, well, yeah, kind of. Real leadership we've got in Washington right now. If only there were an election in 26 days. J.D. Vance is here next.
2: You're listening to a new generation of talk, Guy Benson.
3: Guybensonshow.com is our website here. Podcast is free every day on demand when the show is over. And with us now again is JD Vance, who is the Republican nominee for the US Senate in Ohio. He was born and raised in Middletown, Ohio. He's a businessman and also author of the mega best-selling book, Hillbilly Elegy, which I've read. And JD, it's good to have you back here.
5: Thank you guys. Good to be with you.
3: I want to start with a soundbite that I've actually played earlier in the week. I played it on Tuesday. This is an ad that you have running in Ohio about a tale of two Tims, a reference to your opponent, Tim Ryan. Cut 26.
5: A tale of two Tims. TV Tim Ryan pretends he's with you. I don't answer to any political party. But D.C. Tim Ryan votes with Biden-Pelosi 100%.
3: You've said that you don't like Nancy Pelosi. You love
5: Nancy Pelosi. Yeah, I I do love her. D.C. Tim's been in Washington 20 years, supporting amnesty and opposing the border wall that would slow down illegals and drugs flooding Ohio. I'm J.D. Vance, and I approve this message because TV Tim is fake. But D.C. Tim is bad for Ohio.
3: Okay, so on Monday night you had a debate with your opponent, and... His task was to be TV, Tim. Your task was to reveal DC, Tim. How do you feel it went?
5: I think it went very well. I mean, I, I definitely, you know, the, the feedback I've gotten from people and even the, the reaction from Tim Ryan on, on the debate stage itself made me feel like we, we certainly got the better of him. Uh, it looked very uncomfortable the entire time. I think it was very uncomfortable. Details and any sort of policy depth. And, you know, you can kind of get away with that with a few scripts and responses, but over an hour-long debate, it just starts to wear on people. So it was good. It also was watched by a lot of people. Um, Normally, these debates don't get that high of a a rating, but we we had at least a few hundred thousand viewers across the state of Ohio. So it it was a solid night, and I think, um, you know, should should help us.
3: You know, I was just commenting at the top of the show. We opened – Unsurprisingly, with inflation, the new inflation numbers out today, they're bad, worse than expected, horrible for working class families trying to you know, put food on the table. Groceries up 13 percent again, core inflation, worse than expected. On and on it goes. And I went through the list of a bunch of U.S. senators, current incumbent Democrats, including the most vulnerable ones. They all voted for all of this spending that they were warned about. Even Democrat economists were saying this is too much. This is going to turbocharge things. It's going to get – Inflation out of control, and they all just ignored it. They pretended like it wasn't a thing. It was all transitory. Don't you worry. And now here we are. In the case of your opponent, Tim Ryan, he's not an incumbent senator. He's an incumbent congressman in the House of Representatives. He wants to move up to the U.S. Senate. His voting record is even worse than these senators because he also had a chance to vote on Build Back Better, $5 trillion, which would have been just like Mind bogglingly irresponsible. And like every single House Democrat except for one, as always, Tim Ryan saluted Nancy Pelosi and Joe Biden and voted for something. Thank God it didn't become law. A smaller version of it did. It's bad enough. But he wanted trillions more on top of this fire that they've created. I feel like in terms of the the Senate race picture around the country this year, he's unique in that regard.
5: Well, I think that's right. Of course, Val Demings in Florida uh, voted for it as well. True, so true. You know, they, they they have these really preposterous pieces of legislation that, you know, again, the, the crazy thing is not just that he voted for this stuff, but that he runs an entire campaign pretending that he hasn't. And you, you alluded to this. Larry Summers, of course, the famous Obama administration economist, but, you know, a very smart guy, whatever your politics, said that the the, the, the Democrats spending legislation Was a problem for, or sorry, was a solution for a problem that didn't actually exist. The problem in the economy wasn't that there were too few dollars, it's that there were too few goods and services, and especially energy prices that were rising and supply was constricted. So when you threw just increasing amounts of fuel on that fire, you got exactly what everyone predicted would happen, which is the skyrocketing inflation. Uh, you know What I find so odd, Guy, about these numbers when they come out is that everybody seems kind of shocked by it, even though we all know we're in a terrible inflation crisis. We all know the, the, the sort of the structural problem in the economy is much deeper than the media would like us to believe. So I actually wasn't surprised at the numbers. Uh, I was certainly heartbroken by the numbers. But Tim Ryan voted for this stuff 100 percent of the time. He'll continue to vote for this stuff 100 percent of the time. And as much as he tries to pretend to be a moderate, his voting record is so clear. He's not a moderate. He's a rubber stamp for an agenda that's been objectively bad for Ohio, especially, to your point, those who are least well off right now.
3: Yep. And it's amazing in that Build Back Better vote that, again, if he had his way, things would be even worse right now. In that Build Back Better vote, according to nonpartisan experts, it was a big tax giveaway to the rich in blue states with that. You know, the tax adjustment that the Democrats did for blue state, you know, rich county, rich district Democrats. It was thrown in there and he voted for it. And there was also going to be a tax increase to tens of millions of middle class families. He voted for that in addition, you know, or as a package of this entire multi-trillion dollar thing that Pelosi told him to walk the plank on. and And he happily did it as he always did. And that's the thing, like in your debate, one of the lines that he clearly had ready was, we need an ass kicker in Washington, not or in the Senate. You know, not an ass kisser. And he was calling you an ass kisser uh, with with Donald Trump, and and using that quote, and I guess casting himself as you know the tough independent ass kicker who won't you know won't take any nonsense from anyone, including Chuck Schumer. And it's sort of like a, as you said, literally like it's a, it's a cute rehearsed line, except it bears no resemblance to his actual voting record there's not a single time like even an inconsequential one by accident he could have voted on a tiny thing against biden and he hasn't It's spent a hundred percent of the time that is a special level of loyalty and fealty in my view
5: yeah that's absolutely right and talk is cheap and you're exactly right the voting record just isn't there and you know you make an interesting point you know if i was running for senate as a far-left Democrat, but pretending to be a reasonable moderate, I would just find some procedural vote to depart from the party. You know, 99% sounds bad, but it's better than 100%, right? Yes, yeah, right. Uh, the guy right now, Tim Ryan's running a TV ad in the state of Ohio uh, where he says that he only agrees with his wife 70% of the time. And it's supposed to be sort of a cutesy humanizing ad, and it is well done. And, you know, the, the thing that I keep thinking when I when I hear him say this is, Well, you vote with Nancy Pelosi 100 percent of the time, but you only agree with your wife 70 percent of the time. Does does that make things awkward at home? Uh, (laughs) And and why would you hammer that point, given your voting record and your complete fealty to the leadership of the Democratic Party? The the, the problem really here, Guy, is is actually quite simple. There was a clip that came out, I think just yesterday, that showed Tim Ryan endorsing an end to cash bail, which is one of the more far-left ideas would have made the violent crime problem, which is already bad in this country, much worse. And it kind of hit me when I watched this that you know, Tim was running for president. Right. Uh, he got 21st, I think, out of 21 Democrats. But he was running for president as a far-left Democrat, not knowing he would try to run for Senate as a moderate two years later. And so he's just in this really, really weird pickle where he took so many positions a couple of years ago that he can't possibly explain now.
3: Well, it reminds me sort of a better O'Rourke who ran this feel good cool guy generation x skateboarder guitar dude campaign against Ted Cruz in twenty eighteen. Then he ran for president in twenty twenty uh having said he would never run for president, it would ruin his family. He did it anyway uh went nowhere, but he turned into a big gun grabbing you know leftist on everything. Now he's back down in Texas trying to convince the folks down there that he should be governor, and he's not the guy that he was in 2020. He was pretending to be someone else, and now he's back to Texas or whatever. It's sort of a microcosm of that in Ohio with your opponent. And I was actually going to ask you about that exact clip on cash bail. He called it, like, you know, fundamentally unfair. He wants to get rid of it nationwide was the implication. And if you look at the context of it, not only was he running for president, At the time, so trying to appeal to a a more national Democratic electorate, which is way to the left, especially of where Ohioans are. He's sitting on this stage on this little stool. He's in New England at an ACLU forum. Right. So he's up in New England at an ACLU event running for president, talking about ending cash bail. And now he's back in Ohio saying, like, oh, we love law enforcement. Where would the police increase their funding? All these crazy Democrats. are no, I'm going to stand up to them. And it's it. At least to me, it's so transparent what he's trying to do. And I guess the the question, you and I agree on that. The question, though, is how is it that he is still so close in these polls? I mean, you're ahead in the average. It seems like a poll comes out every couple of days where you're ahead by one point or maybe two points. And you've got Mike DeWine on your ticket, the Republican governor. He's up like 15, 20 points. I know there's been a lot of money spent against you, but should people be nervous that you're only ahead of someone – Running this kind of race against you as someone a Republican nominee in a state Donald Trump, for example, carried by eight.
5: Well, there's a few things I'd say there, Guy. First of all, I'm somewhat skeptical of these polls because they tend to undercount. Uh, they tend to undercount the base here in Ohio, especially in the Republican side. And 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 you're right that Dewine is running a great race. He's also running against a very weak opponent. Uh, but you see, you pretty consistently see the theme where. You know, Senator Portman was running way ahead of Donald Trump in uh, in the polls in 2016. For example, Trump ended up winning by eight points. Senator Portman did win by more, but not by nearly as much of a margin as the polling average suggested. There there just really is a shy voter when it comes to these candidates that the media, like in my case, has decided are the great you know the, the the great evil people. There is a shy voter dynamic that you see in some of the polling. So I'm skeptical the race is as close as a lot of the media has portrayed. Now, that said, I do think that we're in a fight, and we're in a fight for a couple of reasons. One is because we had a very tough Republican primary, you know, $70 million that we spent in the Republican primary beating up on one another. And then we transitioned to a general electorate where Tim Ryan is just running as a Republican. And it's taken a little while for, I think, his voting to seep into the general electorate. But it really is. I mean, it's starting to have a very real effect. Uh, I think we're going to win. I don't think it's going to be that close. But if people want to support us, they can go to JDVance.com and help us get the message out that Tim Ryan is not who he pretends to be. That is his pathway to victory. It's a very narrow one. But his pathway to victory is to bet that the voters of Ohio can be duped into thinking that he's sort of a conservative Democrat or even a conservative Republican. That's what he's trying to play.
3: Are you surprised at all that he has staked out the barbaric position on abortion that he has? Because obviously they're going to come after you on that issue. They they have. It's been a big one in the state during the debate. I know you sort of turned it around on him, uh, and we played some of that sound on this show on Tuesday after your debate. But you know, if he wanted to sort of go along with – This facade that he's putting up, he could have been like, oh, well, you know, I don't want a complete ban. But, you know, maybe after 20 weeks, that seems reasonable. That's where most Ohioans are. So I'm moderately pro-choice. You know, I'm not as extreme anti-choice as my opponent is. He could sort of frame it different ways than he is. Instead, his position is not a single limitation ever, period. As someone who once campaigned as a pro-lifer, he's now gone. He's blown past pro-life moderately pro-life, moderately pro-choice, fully pro-choice into, like, pro-abortion, 100 percent, no restrictions. It is – I don't even want to call it uh, an evolution. It's just this bizarre, I guess, politically calculated decision that he's made nationally. But in Ohio, he's not really pretending to be moderate on this one. He's just, I guess, banking on casting you as a radical and not having to answer about it. I, I suppose that didn't really work out for him at the debate.
5: No, it didn't work out for him at the debate, but I'm not surprised that he's doing it because I don't think the guy has actually any core principles. Uh, I don't know that he actually believes in any of this stuff, but what he does believe is he wants to get elected. And, and this is just where the activist base of the Democratic Party is. So, you know, when when Tim Ryan raises $40 million, nearly all of the of state donors, the reason he's able to raise that money is because he's never crossed the hardcore pro-abortion side of the Democratic Party which you know, to your point I think is at most I mean at maximum of the electorate but in in reality it's 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 really a core part of their grassroots fundraising base yeah. across these people and this is one of the pickles that Democrats are in nationally they're in the problem in Ohio but really multiple other states is set of activists I mean it's not just abortion up to the moment of birth. It's funded by taxpayers. It's you know pressuring doctors against providing life-saving care to babies who survive botched abortions. It's just down the line a very barbaric principle. And and for whatever reason, these guys have decided that this is where they have to be.
3: Yeah, I mean, I think it's those Act Blue dollars that he's chasing, and it's it's a tough balancing act. To his credit, so far he's kind of been doing it okay, which is why this race is close. But it's to get all that money— from the coast. He needs to do the act blue grassroots left wing thing. They'll give him a pass to pretend on a number of topics. Abortion is not one of them. It's like you're all in or the faucet gets turned off. So he's done what he's had to do there. And then he at home just hopes no one really notices and runs a very different race in Ohio where he's saying, like, I don't even agree with my wife, as you said, you know, 30 percent of the time I disagree with my wife, but 0 percent of the time I disagree with Joe Biden, which is an amazing self own I think, in some ways. And that's the difference. That's the difference between TV, Tim Ryan, as you put it in your ad, and DC, Tim Ryan, who has an actual record. If he hadn't been in Congress for 20 years, maybe some of this stuff would be more successful for him. I think it's harder for him to get away with it because of that voting record that we keep talking about. I know you talk about it every single day out on the trail. J.D. Vance. Republican nominee for U.S. Senate in Ohio. November 8th is the election. It's a big one, as I keep saying. If Republicans can't hold that seat in Ohio, the Senate is absolutely lost. It's a must-win seat. J.D., we appreciate your time.
2: Thank you, Guy. Take care.
3: And the Guy Benson Show resumes right after this. Stay with us.
2: Fresh conservative talk. Guy Benson Show.
3: Fox News alert on The Guy Benson Show. This breaking earlier this afternoon, the U.S. Supreme Court denying Trump's request, former President Trump's request, to intervene in the dispute over documents with classified markings taken by the FBI from Mar-a-Lago. The justices offered no explanation for the decision. It was just issued, and there were no recorded dissents. So, presumably, that's just a a 9-0 decision. We're not getting involved. Team Trump wanted them to... Supreme said no. Another Fox News alert related to the former president. This just breaking minutes ago, there was a January 6th panel hearing today here in mid-October. I wonder if they might have one like November 7th, maybe. But in that committee hearing, which we took on Fox News Channel, we've been keeping an eye on it. The panel... Unanimously voted to subpoena Trump to testify, saying that the former president, quote, is required to answer for his actions. I don't see anyone really serious who believes this is going to happen, that the subpoena will be complied with by the former president. I think Trump's lawyers would be off their rockers to let him show up. He might want to. Right. But I think sometimes he gets himself into. More trouble than he needs to by talking, and I think lawyers might handcuff him to like a chair somewhere to prevent him from doing this. But that's the vote of the January 6th committee, and I know a lot of cynics are saying, oh, gosh, they're dragging this thing deep into October. What a surprise. I have been as critical as anyone of Donald Trump about January 6th. Just I thought it was a national disgrace largely caused by him. I don't want him to run again. I don't want him to be nominated again. You know, I'm on the record on all that stuff. It's also naive to believe none of this committee and the timing and all this. Ooh, let's get Trump in the headlines. Bad, bad economic numbers out today. Let's get a, a subpoena out there for Trump. It's like, yeah, I think there might be some politics being played. Imagine that by this committee. We'll talk about the economy with Sandra Smith in our next hour coming up.
2: Live from the most powerful city in the world, unconventional talk from a fresh, unconventional conservative, Guy Benson Show.
3: It's a brand new hour here on the Guy Benson Show on this Thursday from Atlanta. Thank you so much for being here. GuyBensonShow.com is our website. Podcast is available on demand for free every single day. GuyBensonShow.com, all the details there. Follow us on social at GuyBensonShow on Twitter and Instagram. Fox News Alert. The Dow way up today despite the bad economic news, ending in the green by 827 points and closing out at 30,038 points. With us here now to discuss, Sandra Smith, co-anchor of America Reports, along with John Roberts, every weekday from 1 to 3 p.m. Eastern time on Fox News Channel. Sandra, welcome back.
6: Hey, Guy. Thanks for having me. All
3: right. Let's talk about today's inflation numbers worse than expected. A lot of really brutal stuff inside that report. President Biden came out in reaction to it and read a statement that was written for him. He called it progress in Cut 25.
4: Today's report shows, though, some progress. Overall, inflation was 2% over the last three months. That's down from 11% over the prior three months. That's progress. But a lot of it is a result of getting the cost of living at the gas pump down by more, not even California now, by more than a dollar nationally.
3: Progress, Sandra. Uh, 2% the last couple of months. It was 11% sort of throwing some numbers in there, gas prices he referenced. Uh, can you decipher that for us?
6: You know you you know me guy i i've I've been knee deep in in economics and business and the markets for quite some time, and when I hear that from the President, I hear the President somehow taking credit for bringing gas prices down from the record highs his policies ran them up to you know that has to be acknowledged these weren't somehow you know high prices that that he inherited when he got into office. Food prices are up 16 percent under this presidency. Um, That is a real serious pain on American families. Um, They are shelling out more and more every day for not just gas, but food prices, clothing prices, rent prices. Um, And they are not coming down. So you pointed out the markets and that was a heck of a rally. Right. And Mm -hmm. you say that's happening despite. What is and should be perceived as bad news on the economy? I mean, you're talking about 40-year high inflation uh, for Americans. Um, that's 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 tough. You've got more people working two full-time jobs just to pay for that inflation. More people taking on credit card debt. Uh, more people, you know, working paycheck to paycheck just to survive. Um, The markets, as Lizanne Saunders from Charles Schwab put it, I think this was a good way to look at it, the markets might be taking a big, deep breath and saying, okay, maybe this is the last bad inflation report. Maybe finally the interest rate hikes are finally going to rein in inflation. Maybe this is it. Maybe this is where prices will actually peak. And now we have to look forward to the next interest rate decision by the Fed. Markets are anticipating three basis point hike but what is astounding to many watching this is that these higher interest rates aren't actually bringing down prices yet and that's the problem if you're going to have this historic environment for high interest rates you've seen what it does it's doing to the housing market why isn't it bringing down consumer prices and that's going to be a big lift for the federal reserve and it's going to be a big lift for the white house and politically speaking now just weeks from an election day That's going to be something to keep your eye on.
3: Well, and this was the very last CPI report prior to the election, right? We're not going to get another one of these things until after November the 8th. You just mentioned the housing market. Our colleague Dagan McDowell tweeting earlier, mortgage rates surged to their highest in 20 years. The average 30-year fixed rate now at 6.92%. So you've got that on top of the inflation issue. And in order to lick inflation, you're going to have to – inflict deliberate harm and pain on the economy to sort of slow it down and that is going to be according to many experts a growing chorus recessionary right we're in a very bad period of inflation it's just wild to me to listen to a president come out with these bad numbers where the expectation was that inflation was going to be a little bit less bad and then it was worse on overall inflation and core inflation Like they missed on both of those expectations in the wrong way. And all he can do is come out and talk about, you know, progress on this front. And then when he was asked just a few days ago, Sandra, and I know you saw this about the possibility of recession, number one, he's not even acknowledging that technically we already are in one. We've already checked the box. Back to back quarters of negative growth that happened. He's pretending like that doesn't even exist out there. But if we somehow get to a recession, which we're already in, but if we got to one in his mind, it would be a slight recession, which is what you might argue we have already. Slight recession was the term cut 19 in that interview.
2: Should the American
5: people prepare for a recession?
4: No. Look, they've been saying this now how every every six months they say this. Every six months they look down the next six months and see what's going to happen. It hadn't happened yet. It hadn't. There there has there is no. There's no guarantee that they're going to be. Re- I don't think there will be a recession. If it is, it'll be a very slight recession.
3: OK, Sandra, let's unpack this because he's kind of defiantly being like, oh, yeah, they they keep talking about this coming and it hasn't happened, except it has back to back negative quarters. That That is the definition of recession. We've already seen that the very slight recession thing that he's talking about arguably is already here and from you know, other major experts, the IMF, Jamie Dimon, other people out there saying we could get a much more painful recession, especially if the Fed has to clamp down further because they've been unable to tame inflation so far. It it just feels like he is denying current reality and not setting up any reasonable expectations of what a lot of smart people think is going to come next.
6: I, and I think you can make the case that those words from the president are going to age as well as what inflation? There's yeah. no inflation. Transitory. Oh, okay, well, there's zero inflation. And then maybe the, maybe inflation will be a little problem. And ho, oh, here we are today. Inflation this country's never seen. Uh, remember Ron Klein, chief of staff to the president at the time, saying, uh, in, uh, talking about these high prices being. High class problems. Yes, uh, that this wasn't something that was going to affect the lower income uh, portion of the country. They are the ones who are getting hurt the most from all this. I was listening to Brian D. He advises the president. Mm -hmm. Um, He joined a couple different networks this morning. He was on ours as well, and he talked about inflation being a challenge. It's a global challenge. You know, some sort of reference that this is what the entire country is going through. No, this. Going back to this being a problem of the administration's own making, it was ignored. It was blamed on problems other than the president's own policies. And when you look at the energy situation, which, Guy, I'll tell you right now, Javier Blas at Bloomberg is warning about the situation right now that we're going into into winter with depleted supplies and high prices. And this Mm. is going to be a problem here at home. It's going to be a problem in Europe. It's going to be a problem all over. But this administration that came in and hiked regulations, right? They hiked taxes. They shut down the Keystone pipeline, XL pipeline building. Um, And now you've got them saying to refineries, it's their patriotic duty to increase capacity, to bring down prices. Um, It's a tough environment out there. I'm going to bring a couple of refineries on my show tomorrow to ask them. Why does why the president putting the onus on them yep. to bring prices down? Well, is- also
3: promising to put them out of business in the near future. That's also a stated policy. And I guess the reports are today that they were pressuring the Saudis to hold off on their oil decision till after the midterms. It's just all political. I think a lot of people are seeing through it. Looking forward to that interview you just referenced tomorrow on America Reports with Sandra Smith, our guest on The Guy Benson Show. Thanks, Sandra. We'll be right back. I'm Guy Benson. Welcome back. So I saw this clip on Twitter yesterday, President Biden in Colorado. He's doing very few political appearances with Democrats. They don't want to be seen with him, but there are a few exceptions. Colorado is one of them. Oregon, another. And I sometimes wince thinking about doing a segment like this one because it's just so awkward. But I still think it has to be said. Because it's not the first time that he's done something like this. And we know that the president is someone who frequently makes things up about his life. New York Times did a whole story with a bunch of euphemisms about his fairy tales and lies and embellishments and exaggerations that he's been doing serially throughout his whole life. He said he's been shaving the edges off the truth for audiences. Republicans lie, Democrats shave edges. We did a whole monologue, actually, on this show a couple months ago. We put it on YouTube. A lot of people watched it on YouTube in addition to listening to it on the podcast where I just ran through some of the examples of this guy making things up or massively distorting things about his own life and his family's life. I don't know, maybe to make himself seem more relatable or to relate or ingratiate himself to a specific audience, or because he had told himself a story enough times where the fabulism became the truth in his mind. Of course, someone who was busted multiple times for plagiarism got very angry and denied that until he couldn't anymore. That derailed his first unsuccessful presidential campaign. This goes back decades. Just this week, he was talking about how his house burned down once. Didn't happen. There was like a minor kitchen fire once that was contained quickly. He talks about it like the, the whole place burned down. I think he was talking about that incident that didn't happen in the context of people losing everything down in Florida from Hurricane Ian. It's like, oh, yeah, well, I've been through that, too. The house burned to the ground It's basically what he says. It didn't happen. Like, there's like a little oil that caught fire or something on the stove. Put out the fire. Minor damage. It's not, I guess, sexy enough or exciting enough or dramatic enough. So just he comes up with a new version of it. I think it's weird. I think it's kind of gross sometimes. I think it's a very odd thing. You could get into the psychology of it, like what motivates him to do this. It's not like he's done it just recently where maybe he's not at the very top of his game anymore. This is a repeat pattern in this man's life. Joe Biden. But where it crosses a line into something, I would say, appreciably worse is when he mischaracterizes the deaths of people in his own family. He famously lost his first wife and a young daughter in a car accident. Horrible. It's part of the reason that he, on that level, can be very empathetic with people experiencing loss. But, as we've talked about before, He has suggested or stated over and over again that the guy who was in the truck involved in this accident that killed his loved ones was drunk driving, which was not true. And the family of that man has begged Joe Biden to stop smearing their father and their loved one. It wasn't true. But he said it again and again. You would think that the car accident, it's it's tragic enough. We're all sympathetic. You don't need to denigrate someone with false information to sort of juice up the story a little bit more, make it even sadder, have some sort of you know political angle or something to it. He also does this, which is the soundbite I'm going to play about the death of his son Bo in 2015. Again, this is now the second child and the third nuclear family relative. That Biden had lost in his life. Extremely sad, very sympathetic. But weirdly, almost pathologically, sometimes when he's talking to families, people who have lost someone, especially in conflict, he kind of brings up Bo all the time and implies that Bo's death is also what they're going through and he understands. And I know that's rubbed some families the wrong way. And he's even implied a few times that Bo died during his military service, which is just false. It didn't happen that way. So he's gotten knocked by this by certain grieving relatives of soldiers and others in the past. Well, he was giving a speech in Colorado yesterday, and he now very explicitly said that Bo died in iraq cut 21
4: american soldiers of the 10th mountain division scaled that 1800 foot cliff at night caught the germans by surprise captured, captured key positions and broke through the german defense line at a pivotal point in the war just imagine i mean it sincerely i say this as a father of a man who won the bronze star the conspicuous service medal and lost his life in iraq imagine the courage the daring and the genuine sacrifice Genuine sacrifice they all made.
3: So he's talking about an incredible sacrifice of American heroes. Powerful point. More than dramatic enough unto itself. But he throws in this aside about how it really means something coming from him. Quote, I mean this sincerely. I say this is a father of a man who won the Bronze Star, the Conspicuous Service Medal, and lost his life in Iraq. Like, see, I have credibility to really make this point more powerfully because of this experience. He means it sincerely. It is true that he lost his son, Bo, seven years ago, and it's extremely sad. It is not true that Bo lost his life in Iraq. Bo died of brain cancer at Walter Reed Medical Center in Bethesda, Maryland. After having served for eight years as the attorney general of the state of Delaware. Bo was a politician in Delaware like his dad. He had served bravely. We all commend that. He got cancer, which is extremely sad. He died at a very young age, 46. Brain cancer was the cause. Heartbreaking. He was not killed in Iraq. He did not lose his life in Iraq. Joe Biden, the president of the United States, just said that openly flagrantly inserted it into a conversation about American military sacrifice and daring do and bravery. And just like, as an aside, you know, trust this coming from me sincerely. I'm the guy whose son lost his life in Iraq. It just didn't happen. That is extremely weird to me. It's not even a political attack. I don't even want to say anything about Bo Biden and Joe Biden in this context, anything other than sympathies. And that must be extremely hard. And every American Extends our condolences and what a horrible thing to have happened. That's the only thing we should say about it. But it's the president insisting on. I I don't know what to call it, lying. Do do I call it lying? Insisting on lying about the way his own son died. That causes us to do this segment. This is why we're talking about this. And maybe we would just kind of let it slide or say oh there he goes is a a slip of the tongue or that's not, he's done it before this is now in some ways part of this false history fake memory collection that he has and i'll leave it to the experts to perhaps interpret what it means why he does this but it doesn't sit right with me and i'm not someone who has any sort of special insight or special pain or loss on this front. And I can imagine if you were in that category and you heard a president misappropriating his own family's history to make some point like this, I would guess that's probably even more bothersome to you. I don't want to speak for you. I'm just speculating. We'll leave it there. Very, very weird. The Guy Benson Show continues after this.
2: Talking about the issues you care about. Guy Benson.
3: Halfway through today's show, Thursday edition of the Guy Benson Show, GuyBensonShow.com for the free podcast every day. Yesterday, in this exact same segment, actually, we were talking about the Pennsylvania Senate race because we are going to discuss the Georgia elections in the following segment, which, in fact, we're going to do again here today. So interesting little pattern yesterday and today. But I promised during the Pennsylvania focus segment that I would return to the subject because I had more to say. We played some sound from the NBC interview of John Fetterman, the Democrat in that race, where the journalist involved just revealed to the audience that he was struggling to understand her during their small talk. Before the closed captioning. Started Where he had a monitor, he could read the words and then respond that way, and I guess he misread or misinterpreted a few things, creating a couple miscommunications during the interview. Overall, it was sort of, you know, hit and miss. He gave another interview, the entirety of which, it was an editorial board interview, was posted online, and he and his team were saying, see, look at this, we're fine. And I know a number of people watched the entire thing and said, well, it's sort of okay for him at times a little bit more difficult at other times this is a fair question to raise about his health given this devastating health incident that he had a stroke with very serious cardiac issues as well at play we don't really know the extent of them because I think more important than the auditory processing issues that might be temporary the transparency question I think goes to something deeper if he wants to assert For the electorate, that he is perfectly capable of serving and fit to serve in a body like the U.S. Senate. After what has happened to him and declaring criticism basically mean-spirited and out of bounds, the least he can do is turn over his medical records, which he is refusing to do. One of his doctors put out a letter months ago. That's it. And then it's his say-so. And as I pointed out, When Mark Kirk, a Republican senator back in 2016, was running for reelection, having suffered a stroke previously and coming back from it, he also wouldn't release his medical records. He was criticized widely for it. It was an issue in the campaign. The Chicago Tribune explicitly refused to endorse him for reelection because of the issue, that they felt like his stroke was debilitating and he wasn't being forthcoming about his medical records and therefore they couldn't do it. And none of us heard any howls of protest from the media in defense of Kirk against this ableism. And there weren't a bunch of news stories that came out about how awful this was. And starting a new debate about disabilities and privacy and the prevalence of people with certain disabilities using closed captioning to help them. We have seen an all-hands-on-deck effort for the last 48 hours to attack the journalist for just telling the audience something that was true. And to also try to disqualify any conversation about the issue as bad, awful, unseemly, ugly. It was fine when the questions were swirling around a Republican in an important race because the Republican, from their perspective, I'm talking about most journalists, the Republican needed to lose, whereas the Democrat, in this case John Fetterman, needs to win. There was an AP story writing about the controversy around the journalist, who asked some tough questions and who revealed to the NBC audience the small talk observation that she made prior to the interview. And Brian Riedel, who sometimes is a guest on this show, he tweeted what's exactly right. He said this, it's talking about the AP story and all the coverage, just this deluge of stories, damage control, counterattacks, protect John Fetterman. He writes, it's not about Twitter criticism. The purpose of this article, talking about the AP story, is to warn other reporters that covering Fetterman's health and competency issues will be punished by the tribe. Control of the Senate is in the balance, and Fetterman cannot be allowed to lose. I mean, that's exactly right. It's that simple. Sometimes the whole media bias thing, you don't have to squint too hard to see it, and usually it's right near an election where the stakes are highest and the journalists are in their jerseys, their blue jerseys, and boy, they're going to stick to it. I mean, this whole mobilization, it's not quite Hunter Biden laptop Russian disinformation level, but it is a sight to see, all to protect one candidate in one Senate seat. That just happens to maybe be the decisive Senate seat. What a coincidence. It's a big national story and something that's a big vulnerability or area of criticism for Fetterman. They're all just flooding the zone with PR for him to try to shut down any questions about it. And my main point that I mentioned around this time yesterday was my bigger issue, much bigger issue with Fetterman is, let's say he had never had a stroke to begin with, I would still be fanatically, emphatically opposed to him going to the United States Senate because he is a radical leftist. And on top of it, he's just a deadbeat. I've said this before. He tries to portray himself as a champion of the working class. And he says, look, I I wear these shorts outside in the winter. I have these big oversized black hoodies. I have this goatee. I have all these tattoos. I'm a working class guy. Unlike this Oz, this elitist Oz, all he's ever done is a bunch of life saving heart surgeries. What a loser. Unlike me, I'm a working class guy who doesn't seem to work. right. One striking feature of the working class is work, hard work, something that John Fetterman has avoided apparently his entire life. And his parents fed him tens of thousands of dollars a year to pay his bills till he was almost 50. His first real job was a lieutenant governor of a state, which is just kind of amazing before that. and, And by the way, I'll add as lieutenant governor, he was absent a third of the time from his duties, just no schedule. He wouldn't show up to preside over the state Senate, which was his job. He would always show up to the parole board meetings and vote to release violent felons and murderers, including first-degree murderers. That was one thing that he actually did prioritize. He could get out of bed to go do that. But before he was lieutenant governor, he was a mayor of a town called Braddock, a small city in Pennsylvania, a dying city. And Selena Zito at the New York Post Wrote a long piece about it. She's a Pennsylvanian. She profiled the city. This is where John Fetterman was mayor for years. This is where he cut his teeth in politics and, I guess, built up his bona fides for higher office. Now he wants to be in the United States Senate. She interviews one local resident of Braddock saying that the town used to be the place to be with stores and shops and restaurants and everything a bustling borough of 20,000 people. Braddock today, she writes, is home to fewer than 1,700. Most of the businesses, houses of worship, and educational institutions are gone. Even the heart of the community, the beloved Braddock Hospital, has been leveled to the ground. Over the course of his time as mayor, data between 2005 and 2018, shows that violent crime rose under the Fetterman administration. He pledged, On the campaign trail, quote, to make sure our public schools have the funding they need, even though he went years without paying his own school district taxes to fund one of the poorest districts in the state, while, of course, opposing school choice, obviously. What's more, the population of Braddock suffered large drops under his mayorship. Fetterman says we're bringing the city back. We brought the city back. So she quotes this resident in the piece, brought it back to what life? Come on, look around you. There ain't no life here. Nothing is rebuilt here. Nobody brought anything back. It got worse. She talks to one other woman on the street, still lives in Braddock. She says, quote, she takes no issue with Fetterman himself, but does take issue with the narrative that he made the borough better. Job creation? What job creation? The woman asked. This is what Fetterman did for years. while well, his parents paid all of his bills, basically. And he parlayed this into a lieutenant governorship that he didn't show up for. And now he wants to be in the U.S. Senate. I don't care what his health records are. He should release them. This all should be disqualifying. Later, on top of the radical agenda that he supports. I can't believe this is someone close to a Senate seat. Pennsylvania has to make the right call here. Even if you're not wild about Dr. Oz. Let's turn to Georgia as promised again. Big races here. We've got a guest in studio next on The Guy Benson Show.
2: Guy Benson will be right back. From the studios of
3: 106.3 Extra in Atlanta, it's The Guy Benson Show. Glad to be here. Thanks for listening. With me now, Carlos Medina, who's co-host of The Morning Show here, Morning Extra with Tug and Rhino. We had Rhino on the show here yesterday and he's of course with us in studio, Carlos. It's great to see you,
7: guy. I will tell you that um, within these walls, you are always talked about very well because you are apparently the Atlanta Braves' good luck charm. Every single time you go to a ball game, good things happen. Yeah,
3: three and zero. Oh. I'm just going to point that out from time to time. And the Braves and Dickey Broadcasting can do with that what they will. I'm just saying.
7: From what I understand, our owner, David Dickey, has discussed if we have to fly you back for a Game (laughs) 5, but we'll do what we got to
3: do, guy. In the divisional series, and then we'll see what my schedule looks like (laughs) beyond that. Carlos, before we get to politics here in Georgia, your story is interesting to me because my career ambition for years, high school, really even before high school, but definitely starting to act on it, high school, college, sports broadcasting. That's what I did. I was a play-by-play guy for high school sports, collegiate sports as well, and then I got Pulled over into the political realm, you were a sports talk guy in Atlanta, right? And then you were just getting so fired up about current events and political developments that they ended up pulling you over full time into this station, this format, news talk.
7: I feel like it's a, a mafia movie where they tell you I'm trying to get out and they pull me back in. Uh, I found myself when I was a kid, I would uh, I would listen to stations all around the country. Uh, I remember the late, great Papa Joe Chevalier would come through San Antonio where I grew up and would do radio shows. And I'd make my dad pull me out of school to go watch him do a sports show. And when I was in college, I started interning at the ticket in Dallas. And that kind of set me on this path where I spent 20 years in sports talk. And what basically happened, the more educated I got and the more things I started to get into, started following a lot of data, it kind of led me to a lot of discussions when it came to COVID. And the more I got into it, the guys started saying, we want you more over on this radio station. And that's that's how I've now found myself for the better part of five months, all of a sudden being full time into politics.
3: It's an interesting transition for sure. It's wild for sure. (laughs) Yep. It's a different audience in some respects. It's also just blood sport compared to sports sport. And I wonder... Now that you're into this, and you're kind of new at this game, not new to broadcasting, as you just pointed out, here in Georgia, you've got a huge governor's race. Seems like it's probably in the bag for Brian Kemp. You never want to count any chickens, but the polling shows he's in a very good place. Senate race extremely close, where the incumbent Warnock was ahead basically all summer, and then toward the end of the summer, early fall, September, Herschel sort of ran into the lead just by a bit, and then he's had... Some stumbles, some difficulties, obviously allegations. He's denied them. Where do you see that race? And when you talk to people here, callers, anyone, of the folks who might make the difference in a razor-thin Senate race, what are their thoughts on Herschel and these allegations? Is this resonating here? Do people care?
7: What I would say is there's three parts to this puzzle. There are the people that realize that Herschel is a a Georgia legend. You know, 40 years, everyone knows who he is, winning a Heisman Trophy. There's always going to be that faction that holds on to that above all and says, that's why I'm voting for him. Tom Osborne got into uh, the House out of of Nebraska years ago. Tommy Tuberville obviously getting into the Senate in, in Auburn. Our sports heroes do matter around here. There's then the other faction, and this is what I'd say, the second part of the puzzle, it would be uh, your religious right. Uh, The evangelicals, as they were named back in the early 2000s, -hmm. where they're all about Herschel. It's really that third part of the puzzle where it is people that I would say— Do do
3: evangelicals believe Herschel's denials, or is it almost immaterial?
7: No. Here's the weird part about it, Guy. They almost seem to draw strength from it because as as people of faith, they will flat out point out, and we'll all point out, I'm a sinner. Um, I I am not a perfect person. Herschel tells them every day— I am a sinner. I am not a perfect person. Although
3: not on this, right? On the actual abortion allegation, he's saying he didn't do it. Yeah, he's saying he did like, I didn't do this yeah. one. I, honestly,
7: and this is where it, it, it kind of plays into me doing a morning radio show. And I've joked around about this, and maybe this works for the audience, maybe it doesn't. There's a faction of people that look at Herschel and go, if you found him with two dead strippers, they would say, at least it's not three. That, that's the that's the, the vitriol there is towards Raphael Warnock in, in this state. And so that, that third part of the puzzle really comes down to, will the independents – And will the people that lean typically right say, I am done going down with the Biden administration and so much of the voting that has gone from Warnock uh, with that administration?
3: On the Warnock front, I see progressives and Democrats and liberals saying, you know, oh, you know, the Republicans have this guy as their nominee, Herschel Walker, all this baggage, all these problems, denials, scandals, allegations, etc. And on the other side, the Democrats have nominated a pastor. And (laughs) it's like, come on, this guy has a ton of baggage himself. We knew about a lot of it in the last election, which he was trailing on Election Day, of course, then won in the runoff. There's a news story about his church evicting poor people from housing that they own, whereas he, as the pastor, is getting a massive, like almost $8,000 monthly allowance, which is sort of an interesting way to go about business for a church. And someone, in his case, who talks about the least of these as part of his sort of political gospel There are vulnerabilities for Raphael Warnock. He's a good speaker, a very good actor, as his ex-wife has said, on police camera. It's not like Herschel Walker's up against someone who's pristine unto himself. Maybe a better candidate in some ways, more polished, but there's a lot there. That key word you just said,
7: and I used it this morning when I talked about them. When they're going to debate this Friday, I firmly believe the more polished candidate – is not going to be able to win. You're talking about having to come across as down-home because they both have warts. They both have this uh, air about them where you say there's been some stuff in their life that is not working out well. Uh, They're both – some people would call them flawed candidates, okay? I I absolutely would. Now, but I also redraw the definition of flawed candidate. If you can't raise money and you can't create turnout, then you're a flawed candidate. That's what I would call them. Um, But when it comes right down to it, when they're going to debate, I think the person who comes across as less politician – uh, a polished, less inside the beltway, I think that's going to be the, uh, the sort of person that people in, in, in Georgia gravitate towards.
3: Unless, and this is just me speaking as an outsider, if the polished guy is the incumbent who wins running away because the other guy just doesn't look prepared for the job at all, that could be a problem. Herschel needs to be ready for this debate tomorrow. He needs to have more than just very short sound bites. I hope he spent a lot of time doing homework on stuff, and also getting ready for the onslaught that's coming and the questions over and over again about these allegations. We don't, we'll see. We've had him on the show. I wouldn't say it was a hardball interview. It's just sort of getting to know him a little bit. There's going to be hardball tomorrow night. And I think Herschel has a pretty low bar to clear. If he can clear that, I think it probably helps him. If he can't, that could be the end of it. Do you think he could win? I do believe so, in part because of this. And this is the nice part of being local and following this stuff.
7: Georgia, when it comes to registered Republicans, sits somewhere between a 4 to 6% margin of victory over Democrats. There's just more Republicans here. It's a turnout election. And when you if you can turn them out, you can win. And I think that's going to be the challenge over the last several weeks of this race is to make sure that all the damaging stuff doesn't cause people to sit at home. Because if, if Herschel can turn them out, he'll win.
3: And it could also be a matter of if Brian Kemp can turn them out. If Kemp runs up the score and Herschel's lagging behind him but – Only by five points or even seven points, but Kemp wins by eight or nine. That could be enough to pull him over the top as well.
7: There's something fascinating about that because Stacey Abrams has a demographics problem. She landed about 93 to 94 percent of the African-American vote the last time she ran. Right now, she's pulling about 83 percent. And as you know, 83 percent across the country is not going to win for any Democrats out there.
3: So, especially here. She'd, especially
7: she'd here. Cooked. No, no chance. That's where we're looking at that 9 to 10 percent huh. margin. And so you wonder if those those African-American men who are already saying they don't want to vote for, her, if that translates over to Warnock, that's where it becomes interesting for Herschel.
3: Carlos Medina, co-host of The Morning Extra here in Atlanta with Tug and Rhino every morning on our great affiliate in Atlanta, 106.3 FM. Great to see you. Thanks for the insights.
7: I'm telling you, keep bringing the good vibes around here. We keep winning as long as Guy Benson shows up. (laughs) And
3: I'm a Yankees fan. I almost feel guilty about it, but it's fine. Final hour of The Guy Benson Show is coming up next. Stay with us, Andy McCarthy, on crime and the Durham investigation. Straight ahead. It is the Thursday happy hour here on the Guy Benson Show from 106.3 Extra in Atlanta, our great affiliate down here. Thank you for listening. Our final hour of three every day between 3 and 6 p.m. Eastern. GuyBensonShow.com is our website. Everything you need right there, including access to our free podcast on demand every single day. GuyBensonShow.com, FoxNewsPodcast.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. At Guy Benson Show, Twitter and Instagram. You can follow us on social media. We encourage you to do so. And this hour is sponsored by the Finnish Long Drink. So good. Absolutely delicious. I will probably have some this weekend. Since it's all over Georgia and expanding across the country, thelongdrink.com for more information on where they're sold near you. You can also order online, thelongdrink.com. 21 plus only and always drink responsibly. Joining us now is Andy McCarthy, Fox News contributor, former federal prosecutor, author of multiple best-selling books, and you can follow him on Twitter at Andrew C. McCarthy. Andy, as always, great to have you back here. Guy, great
0: to be with you, always.
3: I wanted to start with your new piece, I think I saw it yesterday at National Review, about the Durham probe. You've kind of been a little bit skeptical of the pace of that probe and the progress that he's made, but this week... I don't know if you would call it a game changer entirely, but a very significant bombshell allegation made under oath in this Durham investigation about the FBI and the infamous Steele dossier. We touched on it a bit yesterday here with Kimberly Strassel, but I really want to get your analysis of what you make of it, what the significance is, and where this whole thing might go from here, given the development that we just saw.
0: Yeah, Guy, the unique thing about this, Situation is that what is interesting and useful from a public interest standpoint is the behavior of the FBI, and to the extent that a spotlight gets uh, shined on that, I think it's a good thing. But as a prosecutor, it doesn't necessarily help Dora make the uh, the Danchenko case. In fact, I think in a lot of ways uh, it cuts against ultimately convicting Danchenko, even if we learn very important information, because if if you're sitting in the jury and they're asking you to convict a guy for making false statements to the FBI about his sources, um, which are fairly uh, trivial in the greater scheme of things compared to the FBI um, bringing false information to the FISA court that the the million dollars that they offered to pay Steele shows that they knew that their information that they were swearing to under oath before the FISA judges was not uh, corroborated. All right. So just and pause terrified. there for
3: one second because I want to zoom it back out just a tiny bit because I'm sure many of our listeners heard our interview yesterday with Kim Strassel. We talked about this. For those unfamiliar with this million dollar bombshell, if you will, what was it? What have we learned? And then maybe finish the point about the context of it.
0: Sure. Uh, So uh, Christopher Steele is this former British spy who is retained ultimately by the Clinton campaign but through some intermediaries, including a law firm and Fusion GPS, to to crank out these anti-Trump reports focusing on contacts between Trump and Russia. And he does that from around May of 2016 uh, into the autumn of 2016. Uh, And, you know, the FBI gets these reports. They actually there's reason to believe they got them while the reports were being generated beginning in around June. Uh, And then in October overseas in Rome, uh, they end up a number of agents meet with Steele and, you know, they find his reporting very interesting, but they're basically asking him, you know, can you prove it? Because um, there's very sensational allegations in that, including this idea that Trump is in a conspiracy of cooperation uh, with the Putin regime uh, in Russia. And the thousand uh, dollar p- potential reward was if Steele could bring them. Million dollar. That, million do dollar. I'm, did I say I'm sorry, million dollar. Um, that was if he could bring them evidence that could corroborate his allegations. So, P.S., they never had to pay the money because Mm -hmm. he never was able to prove it. And the relevance of that is that they went to the FISA court in October of 2016 and then in January, April, and June of 2017 relying heavily on his reporting to get surveillance warrants telling the FISA court that Trump himself and at least his campaign uh, were believed by the FBI to be Russian assets. And they did that knowing that the guy who they had offered a million dollars to to prove that what he was saying was true couldn't prove it was true.
3: I mean, Andy, and I made this point yesterday. I'm not a big Trump guy. I understand that some people might feel like this is fixating on stuff that happened in years past. But what you just said to me sounds like an absolute bona fide scandal because it involves an abuse of power. It involves, to borrow a popular term – Election meddling. There's a lot of layers to this. To me, that's just absolutely outrageous.
0: Yeah, I think you're right, guy. And uh, the the interesting thing about it now is what I've just laid out for you isn't really other than the one million dollar you know potential reward. Um, most of the stuff that I I just laid out, we've known for a long
4: time. Yeah, I, but I, the million bucks,
3: this- I think, to the average person, the million bucks kind of emphasizes and underscores. How unreliable this dossier was, because if you had seven figures sitting in front of you just there for the taking, if you can just corroborate what you have slid into the discourse and into the DOJ and into the FBI paid for by the Democrats, all you have to do is corroborate it. And a million dollars is yours, courtesy of taxpayers, by the way, and you don't have the goods to collect that. I think just intuitively people understand what that means and how significant that is.
0: Yeah, I think that's right, Guy. And the, uh, just to underscore the point you're making, w- what I was about to say is it's, we not only learn this this information, but I think the fact that Durham is willing to prove it up in the context of a criminal trial where witnesses are subject to cross-examination uh, and where if what he's saying is nonsense, it can be blown up by defense counsel uh, underscores how serious this is. It's not. This is not – This is not in a a printed report that no one's ever tested. This is not like the January 6th committee where, like, there's no cross-examination and everybody's on the same. This is a criminal trial where he put a very serious allegation out there that Danchenko's lawyers, Danchenko being the defendant, have ammunition to cross-examine and attack that assertion if it's not true. But that didn't happen.
3: So let's say this doesn't actually strengthen his case against Danchenko for the reasons that you were just talking about. Ultimately, again, I might be off on this, but my sense of this is we're going to get a report from Durham, the full waterfront report of the Russia matter. And based on what we are learning, and it seems to me just context clues, breadcrumbs, what Durham is building toward – sounds like it's going to be an absolutely scathing and devastating report that should reverberate. Whether it will, I don't know. There are so many members of the media complicit in all of this that maybe they end up burying it. But it sounds like Durham, at the very least, is getting ducks in a row to put out information to the American people that is going to be, when it's all gathered in one place, pretty damning.
0: Yeah, I think that's right, Guy. Here's the problem. The the, Vehicles by which we've learned most of this stuff so far are the Sussman trial that occurred a few months ago and now the Danchenko trial. And I think it's great that we get this information out and and learn it. The problem is, you know, Sussman got acquitted and the case against Danchenko is a tough false statements case. So what I worry about is that the very people who have buried the story up until now will dismiss uh, Durham's report as unreliable if the people he's charged end up getting acquitted. Right, they declare victory. Like, oh,
3: well, you know, these were acquittals. This didn't go anywhere. And, yeah, by the way, there's a report, and it just kind of gets buried. I think the inner cynic within me agrees with that. But I don't know. Durham seems like he's pretty – Methodical and not dumb and we'll see what he has in store. Andy, I do want to shift gears to an issue you and I talked about a couple of weeks ago, which is crime. One of the biggest issues in the country driving the midterm elections. There's a story out of Philadelphia. In fact, when we last spoke about this, you were very critical and correctly critical of Larry Krasner, the D.A. there who was trying to sort of pawn off his own failures based on his insane pro criminal policies as D.A. in Philly. On to Donald Trump and Republicans and, oh, you look at some of the cities there in red states and the Republicans are lying about all of this when the stats are what they are in Philly and, of course, in a lot of these blue cities, even in some red states. Uh, to me, it was just a completely dishonest answer that he gave. Well, here we have another development this week out of his city. Don't know how he can blame this on MAGA. He might try. But three Philadelphia cops were shot yesterday by a suspect wanted in a homicide case. He opened fire on the officers while they were serving an arrest warrant, and he ended up getting killed in this exchange of fire. But here are three cops who get shot, and the commissioner of Philadelphia police said, quote, we are tired of arresting the same suspects over and over again, only to see them right back on the street to continue and sometimes escalate their criminal ways. So this is another example of what's happening In the city of Philadelphia, and it's unfortunately emblematic of other things happening in a lot of our major cities, I don't know how they spin their way out of this, the people not directly responsible for crime but for making it easier for criminals, which leads to more crime. And just one more note on this, Andy, to get your overall reaction to this, I saw a tweet by Zaid Jelani, who often pushes back against progressive orthodoxies, highlighting a Pew survey, so a poll – of Philadelphia residents, where a majority believe that there are not enough police in the city. We've seen police forces shrinking in a lot of cities, New Orleans, Seattle, uh, contributing to the problem. But in that Pew survey of Philadelphia, interestingly, white Philadelphians were twice as likely as black Philadelphians to say that the city has too many police. So I think often this might be the effect, another example of sort of white progressives, projecting onto other communities these pieties that those communities themselves don't agree with and are harmed by, just one little, I think, interesting nugget that ties into this horrible multiple officer shot situation from yesterday in this city that's been completely dominated by one party for decades.
0: Yeah, you know, Guy, the communities of color that the progressives like to talk about uh, so often are themselves the ones that are disproportionately feeling the effects of crime including violent crime by wide wide disparities and the problem is that you know white progressives want to uh stew over whatever kind of a racial narrative that they can make about the disproportionate by population uh number of uh you know black and brown people who are prosecuted in the criminal justice system uh when in fact you know we know that they're prosecuted because you know, people report crimes. So you can identify who the offenders are. Uh, there are they, these people are disproportionately offending at high rates. But the problem is that the the target of that tends to be, um, you know, these poorer communities. And naturally, they want more police protection because right. they're feeling the brunt of this. You know, they're not in this to do a political uh you know, morality play. Uh, this is life and death to people in those communities, and they want more police protection. The tragedy of this that you've just described uh, is that it's an utter failure to learn from history. You know, this—it's not like this never happened before. Uh, from the late 1960s until the early 1990s, we had very high crime in this country, and particularly uh, in the big cities, and particularly in the big cities in the east, and. Uh, the constant complaint was that you know, the the bad guys were back on out on the street before the cops could finish the paperwork, and they would arrest the same guys again and again and again. In fact, what we know about crime is that you know when we talk about uh, people offending at higher rates, that's not an African American thing or a Hispanic thing, because the typical offender. Uh, what is it what is distinguishing about the p- typical offender isn't so much race as recidivism uh, it's not typical for black people to violate the law again and again and again but it is typical of criminals for black people who are recidivists who who are often criminals to violate the right, law regardless of skin color
3: yeah criminals if right, given the opportunity exactly. to do more crimes tend to do more crimes especially if they feel like the last crimes they did didn't really result in very much punishment or consequences for them. I mean, it's like it's really not all that complicated. It's basic elementary stuff, which is why I think you're seeing the spin uh, that we are and why it's so feeble and why it's failing. Andy McCarthy is our guest, longtime prosecutor, Fox News contributor. There's one more thing I want to get to with Andy on the subject of crime. So stand by, Andy. We'll be right back on The Guy Benson Show.
2: Fresh conservative talk. Guy Benson Show.
3: The happy hour continues here on The Guy Benson Show. Thanks for tuning in. We were just discussing before the break with Andy McCarthy some of the crime wave denialism we're seeing on the left, especially as we get very close to these midterms. On that point, last question, Andy. I spent some time on social media and on this show responding to an article by Philip Bump, who is one of the more brazenly left-leaning journalists at The Washington Post. He wrote a whole story about how crime stats are sort of hazy and inscrutable and complicated. And so this crime wave that Fox News is talking about is maybe a myth or maybe overblown, but Fox is ramping up this whole crime thing really based on shoddy data, and they're scaring people, and they're influencing the midterms as a result. I mean, we have data city to city, and we get it On a regular basis, and I just gave one example after another, people aren't imagining this, Andy. The whole country isn't talking about crime as a top-tier issue because Fox News that we just, like, decided in a meeting, let's make it a problem and talk about it. And then we'll bamboozle hundreds of millions of people, most of whom never watch Fox. It just seems bizarre that you would have a newspaper like The Washington Post Publish something like that, which just seems like, uh, sorry, like a DNC press release.
0: Yeah, well, you know, guy more history here, right? I think Philip Bump wants to be the successor to uh, Alexander Butterfield uh, at the uh, at the New York Times, who famously uh, it was almost parody would once a year write a story, um, especially during the Reagan era, that um, uh, crime rates were falling and yet there were more people in custody as if as if there weren't a linear relationship between those two things so this is an old um, you know how do you uh, uh, how do you mislead people with statistics uh, sort of game plan and the fact that they're doing it tells you that crime is an issue that's resonating with people mm-hmm. Because they're experiencing it it not on the pages of The Washington Post, but on their streets.
3: Yes, and on their late local news and all of that. And they're misleading people while trying to accuse other people of being the misleading ones for simply noticing a phenomenon that Americans recognize in their lives and in their communities. I think we have to leave it there, but that's a good note to end on. Andy McCarthy, our guest, former federal prosecutor and Fox News contributor, Andy Even though I'm broadcasting from Atlanta this week, I'm not going to say anything.
0: (laughs) Thank you, Guy. That's the kindest thing you've said to me in a long time. I appreciate
3: that. (laughs) All right, Andy. Have a great weekend coming up here. Always appreciate you joining us. Thank you. And we'll be right back.
2: You're listening to a new generation of talk, Guy Benson.
3: We are back here on The Guy Benson Show. Happy hour. Thanks for listening. In our first hour today, we welcome back to the show J.D. Vance, Republican nominee for U.S. Senate in Ohio. Crucial race out there. He had a big debate this week. We talked about it against Tim Ryan, the Democrat. Here's part of that conversation with J.D. Vance. There's not a single time, like even an inconsequential one, by accident, he could have voted on a tiny thing against Biden. And he hasn't. It's been 100% of the time. That is a special level of loyalty and fealty, in my view.
5: Yeah, that's absolutely right. And talk is cheap, and you're exactly right. The voting record just isn't there. And, you know, it, you make an interesting point. You know, if I was running for Senate as a far left Democrat, but pretending to be a reasonable moderate, I would just find some procedural vote to depart from the party. You know, 99% sounds bad, but it's better than 100%, right? Yes, yeah, uh, right. The guy right now, Tim Ryan's running a TV ad in the state of Ohio uh, where he says that he only agrees with his wife 70 percent of the time. And it's supposed to be sort of a cutesy humanizing ad, and it is well done. And, you know, the, the thing that I keep thinking when I when I hear him say this is, well, you vote with Nancy Pelosi 100 percent of the time, but you only agree with your wife 70 percent of the time. Does, does that make things awkward at home? Uh, <laughs> and, and why would you hammer that point? given your voting record and your complete fealty to the leadership of the Democratic Party. The, the, the problem really here, guy, is, is actually quite simple. There was a clip that came out, I think just yesterday, that showed Tim Ryan endorsing an end to cash bail, which is one of the more far-left ideas, what have made the violent crime problem, which is already bad in this country, much worse. And it kind of hit me when I watched this that you know, Tim was running for president.
4: Right. Uh, he got
5: 21st, I think, out of 21 Democrats, but he was running for president as a far-left Democrat, not knowing he would try to run for Senate as a moderate two years later. And so he's just in this really, really weird pickle where he took so many positions a couple of years ago that he can't possibly explain now.
3: Well, it reminds me sort of a Beto O'Rourke who ran this feel-good, cool-guy, Generation X skateboarder guitar dude campaign against Ted Cruz in 2018. Then he ran for president in 2020. Uh, having said he would never run for president, it would ruin his family. He did it anyway, uh, went nowhere, but he turned into a big gun grabbing, you know, leftist on everything. Now he's back down in Texas trying to convince the folks down there that he should be governor, and he's not the guy that he was in 2020. He was pretending to be someone else, and now he's back to Texas or whatever. It's sort of a microcosm of that in Ohio with your opponent. And I was actually going to ask you about that exact clip on cash bail. He called it like, you know, fundamentally unfair. He wants to get rid of it nationwide, was the implication. And if you look at the context of it, not only was he running for president at the time, so trying to appeal to a more national Democratic electorate, which is way to the left, especially of where Ohioans are, he's sitting on this stage on this little stool. He's in New England at an ACLU forum. Right. So he's up in New England at an ACLU event running for president, talking about ending cash bail. And now he's back in Ohio saying, like, oh, we love law enforcement. Where would the police increase their funding? All these crazy Democrats. are oh, no, I'm going to stand up to them. And it's it at least to me, it's so transparent what he's trying to do. And I guess the the question you and I agree on that. The question, though, is how is it that he is still so close in these polls? I mean, you're ahead in the average It seems like a poll comes out every couple of days where you're ahead by one point or maybe two points. And you've got Mike DeWine on your ticket. The Republican governor is up like 15, 20 points. I know there's been a lot of money spent against you, but should people be nervous that you're only ahead of someone running this kind of race against you as someone, a Republican nominee in a state, Donald Trump, for example, carried by eight?
5: Well, there's a few things I'd say there, Guy. First of all, I'm somewhat skeptical of these polls because they tend to undercount. Uh, they tend to undercount the base here in Ohio, especially in the Republican side. And 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 you're right that Dewine is running a great race. He's also running against a very weak opponent. Uh, but you see, you pretty consistently see the theme where. You know, Senator Portman was running way ahead of Donald Trump in uh, in the polls in 2016. For example, Trump ended up winning by eight points. Senator Portman did win by more, but by, not by nearly as much of a margin as the polling average suggested. There, there just really is a shy voter when it comes to these candidates that the media, like in my case, has decided are the great you know the, the, the great evil people. There is a shy voter dynamic that you see in some of the polling. So I'm skeptical the race is as close as a lot of the media has portrayed. Now, that said, I do think that we're in a fight, and we're in a fight for a couple of reasons. One is because we had a very tough Republican primary, you know, $70 million that we spent in the Republican primary beating up on one another. And then we transitioned to a general electorate where Tim Ryan is just running as a Republican. And it's taken a little while for, I think, his voting re- deep to seep into the general electorate. But it really is. I mean, it's it, it's starting to have a very real effect. My
3: full interview with Republican Senate nominee J.D. Vance of Ohio available online, GuyBensonShow.com. dot com. Also part of the free podcast, the whole show on demand every day, no charge to you, including bonus Benson on the weekends. GuyBensonShow.com, dot com, or wherever you get your podcasts. When we come back, it's the home stretch. Apparently, the youths. Gen Z, they're trying to get some emojis canceled. One in particular, they're saying, is very passive-aggressive. We'll tell you which one and say if we agree right after this.
2: For the full interview and more, go to GuyBensonShow.com.
3: Home stretch on this Friday eve on the Guy Benson Show from Atlanta this week. Thanks for tuning in. GuyBensonShow.com for the free podcast every day. And we had actually one of our colleagues here at Extra in Atlanta, Carlos Medina. He was on with us in the last hour talking about specifically the Senate race here in Georgia and what he's seeing and hearing on the ground. And he made reference to it. And I just have to mention it one more time. I have now been part of this station. They've been our affiliate for over a year. They've had me come here a few different times. This is my third station visit. And by the way, I just discovered for the first time that they have a soda fountain here, like in their kitchen. A Coca-Cola soda fountain, including Coke Zero, which is incredible and also very dangerous given my consumption levels of that particular product. Now it's just like unlimited right there. Anyway, since I've been on this station, they've had me down a few different times and very kindly – they've invited me to go over and watch some Braves games because the stadium is right across the street from the studios. And our sister station here in Atlanta is the flagship radio station for Atlanta Braves baseball. So they've got all the hookups over there. Dickey Broadcasting has a suite and amazing seats down by the field. So I had all that experience last year. You may recall that I was asked by the Braves to throw out the first pitch at a game against the Cardinals. They'd been struggling, the Braves had, I roll into town. I throw a first pitch, called a strike by the umpire, blooper, their mascot. Didn't bounce it. If anything, it was a little bit high, but a strong arm. I'm just – many people are saying. And then I went to the next game as well. They won both games and then turned the season around, went on to win the World Series. And I'm not taking, as I've said before, I'm a very humble person. I'm not taking full responsibility or credit for the World Series victory. I'm just, you know, pointing out, I would say, a correlation, perhaps causation. I don't see any logical flaws there at all. Then they fall down one game to none in the NLDS against Philadelphia the day before I get here. Then I go to the game last night, and wouldn't you know it, shutout out victory for the home team. And when the game ended, I texted Matt Edgar, who's the programming director here, and I said, I'm not saying, I'm just saying. And as Carlos mentioned last hour, Mr. Dickey, who runs the radio station, he said, well, they might have to look into flying me back if necessary. And I'm not totally opposed, certainly not for the right price. <laughs> anyway, it's a very cool to be here. And look, playoff baseball, just the intensity of it. It was a pitcher's duel for much of the game. Uh, a lot of fun. Had a really good time. Plus, not all the stress involved watching your own team where it can be excruciating. Speaking of which, the Yankees rained out today. They'll play tomorrow afternoon instead. In the meantime, right before the break, we talked about this story. New York Post wrote it up, but I'd actually been hearing about this. Apparently, Gen Z, and look, I'm skeptical of all these stories about, like, oh, this young generation, look at what they're doing now. Because I remember when they would write these stories about millennials. Oh, the awful millennials. Bunch of boomers whining about millennials perhaps forgetting that they raised us. Anyway, Gen Z is the young generation now. And now I'm getting cranky and crotchety and old, so we can be mad at Gen Z together. So they're, I guess, upset about, and they, right? It's like random people on the internet, which is why I'm skeptical, but we're talking about it anyway. The story is many of them, let's put it that way, view the thumbs-up emoji as passive-aggressive and hostile, which I think on its face is sort of confusing because it means, good, yes, thumbs-up. That is almost universally forever a positive, almost like international gesture that is good. It's meant to signify good, okay, etc. But... My understanding from this New York Post story and from some conversations is the objection is when someone sends in response to something else just a thumbs-up emoji, that can be interpreted as passive-aggressive, sort of just like the absolute bare minimum, like, okay, not in a good way. Now, I think some people are way oversensitive and overthinking it, and I guess there are other emojis that they're also mad about. There's a list of them, including the red heart emoji. Come on. The red heart emoji is clearly a positive connotation. The OK sign, which some insane people on the left say is white supremacy or something, which it's not. They're mad about that. The green check mark, The poop emoji. Come on. Is nothing sacred? We want to get rid of the poop emoji? But, Dan, you were saying that your girlfriend, I guess she's, if I had to guess, she's probably not Gen Z. She's a millennial, yes. But regardless, she doesn't like it when you do the thumbs-up emoji. What's the problem here? So it seemed fine to me. Like, she would say something
1: like, oh, we're going to do this this weekend, such and such. And I would send back the thumbs-up emoji, thinking that's
2: a good response. But she explained it that it's like saying K, like just sending K back, like, there's something wrong still, like I'm not giving you a full
3: answer, so it's kind of like passive aggressive that way, people so hate and this is, like, is hey. this is interesting with texting etiquette as well because even simply sending back okay is sometimes seen as underwhelming, not enthusiastic. Getting rid of the o and just k, yeah, is like whoa, h- how dare you? what an insult, But if you did okay exclamation point, you're fine.
4: Absolutely. It would be fine for her. She would have been okay with that. But thumbs up or K or just okay and no exclamation point, no good.
3: Because it's just like what? You're being flippant or maybe you're not really happy with it. So you're sending the thumbs up emoji, but she can't really tell what you mean by that or what your facial expression is as you send it. And so it's not gushing enough Or, or whatever. Like you're not ostentatiously enthusiastic enough that a thumbs up is insufficient? Like yeah, I think well, it's, like, it's a, like, little bit, a little much. Well, it's like if I have, I have something more to say, like I want to say, like I don't really want to do that this weekend, but I'm just going to give you the thumbs up so we right. don't have to talk about it anymore. Right, like fine, you yeah. win, thumbs yeah, up, yeah. we're done here. Christine, you are not among the younger generation, so what do you make of this?
1: I'm so confused. I thought the thumbs up was a good thing. I just sent it to my sister-in-law yesterday. I screenshot the conversation and sent it to YY and Dan because now I'm worried. We were talking well, did about she, Christmas Did she have plans. a problem with it? Well, she didn't say. I don't think she would say if she had a problem with it. But we were talking about Christmas plans. She said we were going to do something at her house. And I gave the thumbs-up sign meaning, cool, mm. great, good. Is that bad?
3: I don't know. And it, it kind of depends – generationally as well, because that's what I want to know. Like, let's say a Gen Z individual like Quiet Wyatt got a thumbs-up emoji from a boomer like Christine. Would he be more forgiving knowing that she's a boomer and would just kind of give her a pass like, oh, this is meant genuinely not passive-aggressively? But if a fellow young person such as myself were to send Wyatt – a thumbs up with nothing else. Would that be seen with a more jaundiced eye by Wyatt? Hmm, Wyatt, what do you say? I
0: I think you, you have to take uh, age and generational norms into consideration. But, I mean, it it kind of depends. I mean, with Christine, if she sends me something like that, I would be a little more forgiving just, just knowing her. Well, you, her... you would be
3: impressed. <laughs> You'd be impressed that she was using technology at all. Right, it takes uh, a it, lot of learning for some folks. No, I, I, I think, I think this whole thing is kind of stupid. I mean, but I, I will say, I, if someone sends okay that or k, that really does get me, uh, get me going because I think that is a little passive aggressive. But I don't think emojis are. Yeah, I learned the okay problem a while ago, and so I try to remember the exclamation point. This is the other thing, like even in emails. If you don't have a bunch of, like, exclamation points and smiley faces, people view the email as cold or even hostile or way too to the point and they start getting worried. Like, I would occasionally, and I've changed, I added the exclamation points to avoid the miscommunication. But people are like, hey, is everything okay? I got your email. It just it seemed a little stern. And I look at it. It's like, what is wrong with this? They want more affirmation. And exclamation points and smiley faces assure them that everything's okay. And this is not something I'm willing to fight over or, like, go to the mats on tradition. Like, exclamation points are extraneous and should only be used when they really matter. Like, I don't care about that. If you want me to put some exclamation points in there, fine. I'm happy to do it if it makes you feel better and doesn't make you sit there anxious and worried about how I'm feeling because I guarantee you I'm not thinking about it. OK. Final words, Christine, anything to yeah, add?
1: Yeah, I have a lot to add, actually. So hold oh. on. We're not ending the segment yet.
3: We're up against the glow.
1: clock. OK. Wyatt says OK to me every single day and almost <laughs> every single response. So I'm a little bothered that that bothers him because that's all he ever says to me. No, but he okay. said he's
3: he's adjusting and modulating his texting for you. Because he understands the huge generational gap at play.
1: There, there is not a huge generational gap. Just because I probably could have birthed Wyatt doesn't mean that we're oh, that far apart.
3: Oh, what, a, what an image that is. And, <laughs> and we do know because people might wonder what, what generation is Christine? Is she a boomer? Is she an exer? I'm not a boomer. Um, like, well, the one thing we know for sure is she is not a member of the silent generation. Like that is quite clear. But anyway, uh, your next point.
1: I would like you to have a little more exclamation points and a little more smiley faces to your emails to me because they are never, never that friendly. So let's work on that.
3: Do we we email though? We don't really email.
1: If you need something, you'll email me, and it's usually like one sentence.
3: Yeah, lowercase. I just bang it out, send it off.
1: Maybe a heart emoji. Very utilitarian. It's
3: very utilitarian, and because like if you actually translate spoken out loud the words with all the exclamation points you actually sound like a lunatic christine i'm coming to (laughs) new york next week can you make dinner reservations for us heart 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 like i'd sound like a psycho
1: i feel like that's how i sound (laughs) not my words Normally,
3: not my words but we have to go exclamation point thank you for listening omg love 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 thumbs up Back here tomorrow, same time, same place, on The Guy Benson Show. We'll talk to you then. Okay?